I realized this week when I was trying to upload the Sunday school class that it didn't record. So that is uh, lost to, I don't know, the past. <laughs> um, but just making sure my recorder is going this week so that we can record it and get it up online. So again, this is part two of a two-part, as we've come to the end of our study in this book, Deity and Decree, this is what we've been working through for the past few months. So we have this class, and then uh, next week, which uh, is the plan is for it to be a sort of Q&A, not that we have all the answers to these uh, questions, which are deep and broad and high and wide, but it is to just provoke maybe conversation, maybe hit some things we didn't get to elaborate on as much as we wanted to, and for you to be able to, to ask questions. So that's the goal next week, Lord willing. Um, but just a recap from what we've talked about. Last week, we began talking about God's decree and predestination. And so we gave a definition for predestination. Uh, predestined coming from uh, two Greek words, uh, proizo, uh, or from pro before, um, established boundaries and limits, right? So when we think about predestined, um, according to, to Thayer, I'll just give that, that definition and talk about it a bit. Uh, to predetermine, to decide before, in the New Testament of God decreeing from eternity. God decreeing from eternity, okay? Ephesians 1, 4 to 8, we looked at this verse, these verses, even as he chose us, God, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Ephesians 1, 4 to 8. In love, he predestined us for adoption. God's decree from eternity. Okay? I talked about Gerhardus Voss in his reform dogmatics, which says, he says, the doctrine of human inability after the fall is inseparably connected to predestination. So we talked about predestination for for a bit, um, and just those common questions that, that come up when we think about predestination and election. Is that fair? Can, does God choose some over others? Does he choose some and pass by others? Um, is, that, is, is that, if God is good and just, is that, is that fair? Can we, can we say that God actually does that? And so Gerhardus Voss is helpful here, and he sets human inability we talked about that in relation to total depravity. He sets that right there in line. He says it's inseparable from predestination. Again, human inability is connected to what we may call total depravity. The word total does not mean a sinner is as completely corrupt in all his actions and thoughts as he could be. We talked about that a bit. So when we we think about human inability that we are unable to come to God ourselves um, and do any, uh, anything of any spiritual good. Um, we, are, we are totally depraved. Totally depraved doesn't mean that we, we are as corrupt as we could be. It means that all of our faculties are fallen. Uh, the, the curse and sin spreads to every part of the man, okay? The view that we take concerning salvation is largely determined by the view that we take concerning sin and its effects on human nature, okay? I would love to point you back to that class, but it didn't record. So <laughs> uh, I can share my manuscript if, if that would be helpful for you, but I think it's, it, it's crucial to understand human inability, total depravity, uh, in order to view predestination um, rightly, without putting God on the stand and saying, uh, prove yourself. Tell us, why did you do this? 
Um, but if we understand our nature, that we are corrupt in Adam as Adam's posterity, then um, it's only praise, glory, and thanks be to God that he does show mercy to any. Okay. So moving on to new material, the decree and preterition. That's not a word you hear every day. Anybody know what that word means? Preterition. I'll tell you. Uh, preterition can be defined as the act of passing by. That's a, that's a broad term or a broad definition. It can be defined as the act of passing by. Now, we're still thinking about the topic of election and predestination here. So this will just carry on that same, that same thought. Uh, Samuel Renahan, in his books, he starts this section by saying, if God elected a group of persons to receive and enjoy grace and glory in Christ Jesus, then there is a group whom God did not choose. <clears throat> if there is a group of persons whose salvation God willed, there's a group of persons whose salvation God nilled, uses this, uses this term, nilled, N-I-L-L-E-D. <clears throat> now, I had never heard this language prior to working through this book. I had never heard nilled before, but I thought it was helpful. Then I realized, actually, I have heard this term before. You hear it in the expression willy-nilly. Have you heard that before? You can't just go around doing things willy-nilly, right? There's a, that, that puts into your mind some idea. So what do you hear when you hear willy-nilly? What does that mean? What's that? No thought, okay. What else? Haphazard, yes. That's the word I wrote in my notes. You get a golden star for that. <laughs> Haphazard, right? <clears throat> Without thought just going about without giving much consideration, haphazard, willy-nilly. Now, that's not its original meaning. Uh, haphazard was not the original meaning of willy-nilly. It's come to sort of be uh, used in that way. Willy-nilly comes from the phrase or the term, will he, nil he, will he, nil he, which means whether he wish or will it or not. Willy nilly. To nil means not to will something. In relationship to predestination and salvation, to nil salvation means not to will salvation. And so going back to how Renahan lays this out, he says, uh, there are those whose salvation God willed an election and those whose salvation God nilled or did not will. Preterition, right? Those whose salvation God has not willed. Reformed Protestants have expressed this truth in two ways. Negatively by preterition and positively by reprobation. And we'll talk about those in a bit. But so far, you guys with me? Willy-nilly, willed to will to not will. Okay. God has willed some and has nilled some or not willed. Reprobation has been defined differently by different Reformed theologians. Some would define reprobation um, in, in connection with a phrase, double predestination, where God positively chooses a people for eternal judgment in the same way that he chooses some for election unto salvation. Now, the spectrum of reprobation has to do with this question. Does God choose some for eternal damnation with respect to the mode of divine activity as the elect, or does he simply pass them over concerning grace? In other words, God moves on the will of the elect sinner by grace through faith. It is a monergistic work of God. He changes their heart. He turns their will, their, their affections. Does God move on the will of the unregenerate sinner in the same way? Does he have to? Let's look at a few verses. 
So that's what we're, we, we want to wrestle through. Think about um, God willing, God nilling, God not willing. Think about preterition, predestination, reprobation, double predestination. Should that be a category? Let's look at a few verses. Um, someone read Romans 9, 22 to 23. Everyone go to Romans 9. And let me have someone read verses 22 to 23 for us. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Okay. So this is one of the texts that some may use to uh, make an argument for well, I don't want to lay my cards out now. I want to build the case first. But this is a text someone would, would, would go to in considering <coughs> double predestination. What if God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Um, a few other texts where we see um, what seems to be a similar idea. First Peter 2.8 says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And the Proverbs 16.4 says, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So again, this is where these are texts some would go to to um, uh, defend, argue, double predestination and that God, in the same way he elects the um, redeemed sinner, unto eternal life in the same way he works in the unregenerate person into eternal destruction. Now, <clears throat> that's to present, to lay out, to get us to feel the tension there, right? There's, there, there is a, like, what do you do with these texts? How do, you, how do you wrestle through this? How do you make sense of this? Can God be good and just and holy and this be true? if we're thinking about it in that way. Well, God has, he has predestined vessels of wrath. I would not argue uh, whether or not he predestined them. I would argue and say that he has not predestined them in the same way that he has predestined the elect unto salvation. God's sovereignty is absolute, but the ways in which he executes his decrees here are different. The mode of divine activity is different. I feel like this nuance is very important. Um, we, we can't, there, there, there's space to say, well, it's not just this or this, but there is another category here. Um, it's not that, well, if God elects the um, redeemed sinner unto salvation, then he must elect or choose the unbeliever predestined them in the same way unto destruction. I think there's a, a third way to understand this and, and nuance this. Um, Gerhardus Voss, again, in his Reform Dogmatics, he asked this question. He says, does scripture use many words for reprobation as it does for election? And then he answers, no. We hardly have a single word that can be juxtaposed with the words mentioned above election as their opposite. So he searches scripture and he says, we, we don't see anything in scripture that juxtaposes, that, that gives a word that's the opposite of what we see for election unto salvation. And so in his mind, that's, that's a category. He sort of moves off the board there. He goes on to say that the opposite word used in scripture for choose, rather, is reject or not to choose. So this sort of gets back to this idea of willy-nilly, to will and not to will, right? Not to will and to will, one to eternal salvation, one to eternal destruction in the same way, but to will and not to will. Um, Psalm 78, 67 to 68. 
It says, God, he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He did not choose. He rejected one. Chose, one, chose the other and rejected, did not choose one. Uh, there are those whose salvation, again, God willed an election, and those whose salvation God nilled, preterition, or those whose salvation God does not will. Now, just thinking about, thinking back about the, the question sort of presented here, um, does God will the salvation of the elect unto, unto um, eternal life in the same way that he will, or, or does he will the, the destruction of the wicked in the same way that he wills the salvation of the elect? That's, that's the question I want, to, I want us to think about and to try and answer here. <clears throat> Ligonier Ministries has a helpful article. Um, it was helpful for me, at least, as I was trying to think through this topic and to um, just wrestle with it in my own mind, some of these categories presented. The um, article says, when God chooses a sinner, he puts forth an action to save that person. God works to create belief in us. God works to create belief in the sinner. The contrast with the doctrine, or this contrast with the doctrine of reprobation. God does not put forth an effort to cause people to sin. When God chooses to bypass the sinner, he does not work to create unbelief in that person's heart. Rather, God simply lets him go his own way. You see the difference there? He works monergistically, creates belief in the person's heart, the elect, those predestined unto eternal life. He doesn't have to work in the heart of the sinner in order for them to be fit for destruction. He lets them go their own way. He does... Uh, predestined, but his mode of divine activity is not the same in both. You see? Okay? When God implements preterition by reprobation, this article continues to read, um, by probating the wicked, he does not do anything to them. He simply leaves them alone. In this important sense, the work of God in condemning the wicked is not the reverse side of his work in saving sinners. So, preterition is an expression to say that God has passed over the wicked. He has not chosen them for salvation. If salvation is God giving the sinner the necessary grace, then preterition means that God has not given some the necessary grace. He has nilled their salvation. In other words, he has not willed it. He has passed them by. He has not given them the grace of salvation, which he has given others. Now, the, this is why part one and uh, man's corruption by nature is so important when we look at now part two. Knowing who we are by nature, we looked at verses that puts our corruption on display. From the womb, we go astray speaking lies. Um, we are by nature, scripture says, children of wrath. Um, our union with Adam, the natural man's union with Adam is enough for them to deserve the righteous judgment of God. Our actions attest to this reality. And so when we think about God willing and working in the heart of some to create belief, we really, the response, I think the appropriate response should be thanksgiving and praise because God is merciful. Because when we understand that we don't deserve anything, and then we see God gives what we don't deserve, 
thanks be to God, is really the only appropriate response, doxology. That doesn't mean that we don't wrestle with these things. These texts, this question presents a tension. There is something of a wrestling in our hearts when we think about this. But understanding the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man is crucial as we think through this. That should be the uh, secret sauce in the meal of our thinking. Uh, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man. Um, when it comes to predestination and election, we most often see language of saving and leaving. Um, saving some by mercy, grace, and leaving others without it. In Romans eleven <coughs> seven, Paul uses this language of what then, he says, Israel obtained to Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. This language of elect and the rest. Someone read John ten twenty five to twenty six for us. I think it's on your handout there. Who wants to read that? Matt, thank you. I told you. Okay. <clears throat> you are not among, some translations read, you are not of my sheep. <coughs> and then Revelation 13, 8. Let me have someone read that for us. All right, go for it. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Okay, thank you. So looking back at these two, two texts here, Jesus, you are not among or not of my sheep. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, he will say. Revelation 13, 8 whose name has not been written in the book of life. And that this, this language, we're, we're trying to draw out and highlight this language of just going back to elect and the rest, which we see in Romans 11. Um, sheep, not of my sheep. Um, written down, not written down. Right? <clears throat> That's the, the language we see in scripture concerning this topic. <clears throat> Back to Voss's point. We don't see a word that can be juxtaposed with election as its opposite. In the case of reprobation and preterition, God does not have to harden the heart of the sinner against his will. By virtue of our union with Adam and the covenant of works, we are by nature children of wrath. Uh, we covered this point last week again. God doesn't have to elect someone unto destruction and harden our hearts so that it is accomplished. He simply leaves us in our natural state. Now, this came up, um, actually, it was last week in um, our Joy Fellowship group, which is the 55 plus ministry um, that we facilitate on Tuesdays. Pharaoh came up and these uh, texts in Exodus concerning the heart of Pharaoh. I want us to look at them together. I want to read them back to back and then talk about them. Um, okay, Exodus 8.15, who wants that? I, I, I want you to mark the verse and then when we read it, I, I'm gonna read them all back to back, but I'm just gonna assign them now. Exodus 8, okay, Caleb? Exodus 3, or Exodus 8.32, sorry. Exodus 8.32, all right? Mia, uh, Exodus 9.34. All right, Matt? Exodus 10.1. All right? Exodus 11.10. Arnie? Okay. All right, so everybody got their assignments? Okay. Now... Find the text, and then I'm just going to call it out, and then you'll just read it, okay? 
Everybody there? Set? Good? Okay. Exodus 8.15. Exodus 8.32. Exodus 9.34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Exodus 10.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may perform these signs of mine. Sorry, just to warn right? Yep, <laughs> thank you. No, you're good. Exodus 11.10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Okay. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was it God or was it Pharaoh? Both. <laughs> yeah, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God or Pharaoh? Yes. But qualification: God's mode of divine activity is not the same here as in the redeemed sinner. God didn't have to harden Pharaoh's heart against his will as if Pharaoh wanted to do good and God would not let him. There's a difference there, right? God hardening is not God making the sinner sin against his will. Rather, it is God's further removal of his preserving and restraining goodness. It is the relaxing of God's grip to permit the sinner to carry out the sin that he wanted to do. The evil that he would not otherwise carry out while God is restraining his sinful actions. So as opposed to pushing the sinner to sin against his will, see it as God relaxing his grip that would usually restrain them in their sin. Does that make sense? He relaxes his, his grip. If you, I'm trying to think of a, a helpful, if there's a, a dog um, and it's viciously after some piece of meat and the owner, he immovably grips and holds the leash. This dog really wants the meat. He's after it. He's bent, hell bent on getting it. God relaxes his grip on the leash a little bit and allows the, the man, allows the dog to get the meat, right? These are all uh, weak analogies when talking about God. <laughs> I understand that. Um, but there's a difference between that and the owner of the dog saying, go, get him, Rufus. Go tear the meat apart. God is restraining the sinner. So when Pharaoh hardens his heart, and more when it says that God hardens his heart, God simply permits the sinner to do the sin that they desire to do, as opposed to his restraint on them. Um, our society <laughs> functions the way it does, the, the, the good of it, the order of it, functions the way it does because of God's common goodness. That is the uh, aroma, the mist of God's goodness and creation. He is preserving things. We are not as bad as we could be. We could be much, 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 much worse. So that, this is always happening. God is always actively working in the world. The Spirit of God is always actively working by His goodness to restrain, preserve even the unbeliever in their sin. So when we think about Pharaoh and his heart, who hardens, God or Pharaoh? Yes, but God is not actively pushing Pharaoh to sin and commit the sin that um, he would not otherwise commit himself. Um, yes. Yep. Can I just mention, uh, 
Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Right. Right. Perfect example. Yep. That's good. Okay, so we all tracking here, sort of more or less. Yep. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you, Ron. That's that's helpful. I completely forgot about that verse. I'm glad you mentioned it. Um James Renahan in his Baptist Symbolics writes this, which I think is helpful. He says, When contemplating decree, God's glory is paramount. This is the necessary consequence of what proceeds. In his eternal works, the Lord shows forth his magnificence, especially in two ways. First, his decree brings eternal life to his elect. Second, his glorious justice manifests itself in the condemnation of those who would remain in their sin. And so he highlights God's glory on both sides of this. Um, for the elect, his glory and bringing them to eternal life and his glory, his justice glorified and magnified um, in the condemnation of the wicked. Very important to keep in mind. Okay, now I'm going to try to fit in a few subjects in the last 15 minutes here. <clears throat> God's decree and angels. God's decree and angels. Let's take a look at, in the confession, paragraph three and four, and chapter three of God's decree. Let's read paragraphs three and four. And then we'll work through, work through those. Uh, who has their confession with them? Or pull it up on line. Or on the sheet. <laughs> yeah. Can somebody read those? You want to read? Uh, by God's decree and for the administration of his glory, some human beings and angels are predestined to foreordain to eternal life through Jesus Christ, the praise of his glorious grace. Others are left to live in their sin, being their just condemnation to the grace of glorious justice. Okay. Have you had a category for elect angels in your thinking? Has that been something you've seen in scripture or, or thought about? Yes? No? <clears throat> Interesting topic. Doctor, Ron, can you read the next paragraph? These predestined and foreordained angels and people are individually and unchangeably designated. Their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either in Okay, thank you. So just to hit on this for, for a bit, there are, we see in scripture, elect angels and non-elect angels. Those who uh, followed uh, Satan uh, and his destruction and his rebellion and his disobedience, um, those who fell from their previous glory, these non-elect angels um, and those preserved by God, these elect angels. I'm just going to work through um, parts of the book here. Okay. At the bottom of 144, uh, Renan says, the decree of God <coughs> with relation or with election reaches to angels and not men only. What is the biblical evidence for this affirmation? And what does it mean? Consider four things. First, the Bible mentions elect angels. First Timothy 5, 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. 
if there are elect angels, what were they chosen for? Or unto what are they predestined? What does the phrase elect angels mean? <clears throat> Second, there are angels who will be judged and punished eternally with Satan. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. If there are elect angels distinct from angels who will perish eternally, it seems that the angels who do not perish eternally will enjoy the eternal glory because they were chosen by God. Another verse, Romans 8, 20 to 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's a, a, a category in scripture for, like I mentioned, angels or elect angels and non-elect angels. Uh, but there's also a category in scripture for the redemption of all things, including angels. Now, when I say redemption, I don't mean redemption in the same way that men are redeemed and their fallen state. Um, the, the elect sinner will be redeemed, right? He has union with Christ. His, he will get a glorified body and be redeemed in that sense. But there is a category for something that takes place in creation. Angels are created, they're, they're creatures. Something that takes place that includes even the angels concerning the redemption and reconciling of all things in Christ. Colossians 1.20. Well, let me back up and just read something here. Uh, Through his life and death, Jesus obtained the glory of a new creation, a glory that no part of the present creation experiences except the children of God who are regenerated and have the Holy Spirit. The glory of the future and final creation was won by Christ the mediator. Yet the work of redemption fulfilled by Christ reaches the heavens and heavenly beings. Colossians 1.20. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. <clears throat> so Christ, redemption, and reconciliation of all things is cosmic and includes everything uh, created. Anything not God is a creature, it's, it's, it's creation. This redemption includes everything created and stretches to even the heavenly beings, these angels, these created heavenly beings. Christ's work of mediation, <coughs> which brings all things to consummation, one for them, a confirmation of their pure innocence. They remained able to fall as other angels had fallen, which they did, speaking of the angels, until Christ's work won their perfection. Jesus obtained a better future, a perfected future for elect angels by confirming them in their innocence and holiness, thereby advancing them to a greater glory. The worship of Christ described in the Bible, therefore, is based on more than simply the redemption of sinful men. It is based also on the redemption of heaven and earth and the confirmation of the elect angels. Interesting concept here. Let me have someone read Revelation 5, 13 to 14. Revelation 5, 13 to 14. <clears throat> Who wants to read that for us? Go for it. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, 
to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and the might forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Okay. <clears throat> so there is a, we see in Revelation 5 here, uh, the heavenlies, the earth, under the earth, um, and some sense, everything in creation is uh, informed, uh, affected by the what, fall, and also the redemption that is found in Christ. That is, that is cosmic. Now, specifically thinking about the angels here, I'll just I'll hit this, and then we'll look at a couple other other points. I want to read something. Um, so this is out of Samuel Renahan's father, James Renahan, really helpful exposition of the 1689, where he does a lot of work on this, but draws from these older theologians, men writing in the context of the 1689. Um, and he points out Nehemiah Cox here um, on the subject of angels, fallen angels and the redemption of angels, not in the same way as men, but a category for it. Um, Okay, he says, so based on these words, <clears throat> a result of the sun's cross work is the reconciliation of things in both the earthly and heavenly realms. In Cox's chapter three of the extent of Christ's death, he writes, these texts do not or do, do in no wise prove that Mr. Cox um, doth produce them for the mentioned or the first mentioned Colossians 1.20, which we, we read earlier is by diverse learned and judicious men interrupted or interpreted rather according to the subject matter, all things, the whole church and family of God in heaven, the spirits of just men made perfect and in earth, the elect still in the world, even all that are reconciled are so in Christ. And if he carry it further, as some able interpreters also do, he will have angels included and also the fabric of heaven and earth and the creatures therein made for the service of man. Yet can it not on a like account be applied to all these? We cannot rightly conceive of a reconciliation of angels, properly so-called, that never sinned. It is at most but an analogical reconciliation. They being confirmed in grace and secured in their station. So picks up on the same idea that the elect angels <clears throat> they are they, they hadn't fallen they, they don't have a uh, sinful nature as man does it they don't have union with Adam but he's saying that the reconciliation of all things includes even for angels a confirmation in an immutably uh, an, an, an immutable state whereby they are not able to fall like those original angels again very Interesting, and I'm still thinking through this myself. <laughs> uh, but our confession has a category for this, and it's under God's decree that even elect angels, by God's divine decree, have been preserved and, in some sense, will be established and confirmed in their state as immutably unable to fall. I'll let you wrestle with that, and I'll wrestle with it too. Um, okay. Five minutes left here. The decree and the order of salvation, or the ordo salutis, and the decree and the assurance of salvation. Our last couple topics here. Uh, the decree and the ordo salutis, or the order of salvation. <clears throat> Just as the decree is simple and eternal, but its effects are diverse and successive, so also the decree relating to the predestination of the children of God unto salvation unfolds in a specific order, the order of salvation, or ordo salutis. Through the good news of salvation in Christ, God uh, efficiently, powerfully, sovereignly causes new birth or regeneration of those whose salvation he willed in Christ Jesus. Now let's take a look at Romans 8, 29 to 30. Who can read Romans 8, 29 to 30 for us? 
Me? Oh. <laughs> Okay, so when we think about what God is doing and the heart, the Christian in regeneration, uh, justification, uh, election, justification, um, redemption, all these things, these are take place in time and space uh, because of God's divine and eternal decree. So even our sanctification is decreed by God. Um, the fact that we will be justified, of course, we will be glorified. We will make it to the end. He who began a good work will bring it to completion in Christ. Um, all of these things take place by God's simple and sovereign decree. For us, they take place in time and in space. One, here's the gospel. Um, there's a working in his heart that God does seriously by his own power. Uh, his belief, his faith repentance, justification, all these things happen and we can talk about the, the, the closeness or uh, separation of these things in time and space, but they do take place in time and space one after another. The, the, the Christian is not sanctified before he is justified. Right? Within, at some point he repents, has faith, believes, believes the gospel, then he's sanctified and then, and then glorified. Right, but in God's eternal decree, in his simple eternal decree, um, God has already determined the end from the beginning concerning our salvation and the end of it. Uh, this bleeds into, my last couple minutes here, assurance of salvation. The, the, the Christian will never sin not to repent and be restored, which is the work of God. Um, I'm going to put that another way. We will never ultimately fall away. God holds the faith, the salvation, the Christian, and the palm of his hand. Uh, Jesus says no one will able, be able to snatch you out of the firm grip of the Father. Christ's hand, the Father's hand, our triune God. No one will be able to snatch us out of his grip. We are kept. Now, we recognize that there are those who make professions of faith, and well, we use language and say they fell away. Uh, there was a profession there. There was um, a, a verbal acknowledgement of the gospel. What seemed to be a belief, the Bible shows us that there are those uh, it, it turns the heart into soils and says there's this soil that's ready, it's fertile, the seed, it falls, it, 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 um, it seeps, it's watered, it blossoms. There's, there's another soil that's hard, the seed lands, something, the bird snatches it away. There's another seed that lands on a heart that gets caught up in thorns and thistles and it's choked. Right? So we, we see those in scripture. Um, we, we shouldn't necessarily be surprised if we have... I don't know, friends or family we grew up with, they profess the faith. I mean, I've had friends and, that I've, you know, preached the gospel with were just adamant, zealous uh, preachers and proclaimers of the gospel um, who t today are not walking with the Lord, um, not indifferent or neutral, adamant against God, His holiness and His word. Um, but we do see that in, in scripture. We see a category for that. We see uh, Demas, Paul says, in love with this present world has abandoned uh, me and the faith. Um, so, but for those who are true, genuine believers, which we don't walk around with glowing ease on our backs or chests for election, so we know they're in, they're gonna be, them, what, what they're doing now, this season for them, it's not gonna last forever. They are kept, they're secure. We don't know. We, we proclaim the gospel, we entrust ourselves to the Lord, we repent, and believe the gospel daily, but we have the assurance that we are kept by him. Um, can you think of any text that the believer can go to, look at, recite, remember, to remind his own heart, his or her own heart of God's 
power and upholding them in salvation? What comes to mind? Any verses? Testis. This is our co-counseling session. <laughs> right? Counsel me. Counsel one another. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yep. What else? God began. He will bring it to the end. Any other verses? Verses that you go to? Just John 10, 28. Okay. It says, uh, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out. Amen. Yep. Kept. No one will be able to snatch. What else? What's that? Okay. Neither <laughs> I know you know it already. I don't want to misquote. But I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus. Yeah. Amen. Good. Good. So we can look at scripture and we see categories for those who have fallen away. Um, but we also see that it was a false profession. And then we see categories for those who are sovereignly, powerfully kept by God because of God alone and his work and his power. Um, Deuteronomy 29, 29. I'll close here. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. We can't peer into God's eternally divine, sovereign mind to know we have what he's revealed to us in his word. Um, but ultimately, we don't know who is predestined and elected. We proclaim the gospel. We rejoice in the glory of salvation. We repent of our sin. First John says, if we deny we have sin, we are lying and the truth is not in us. We, we, we recognize we sin, we repent, we turn to God and are upheld sovereignly, divinely by him. If I had more time, I would talk more about that category, but I don't. What has been revealed to us in the word of God, we obey, we do, and trusting and resting in the righteousness of Christ alone. Okay? All right. I'll close there. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless it, that as we hear and wrestle and think and pray and reason, that you will be glorified in all these things. In Christ's name, amen.